And we're live on the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Grayline Investments. We're ready to jam today. Frank, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, man. I'm, I always say I'm doing great. Um, so I give like really boring responses to this, but I'm doing great, man. Doing awesome. Yes, uh, me too. I'm, I'm excited. Okay, what, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, actually, I'm interviewing you today, right? So um, I'm putting you on the hot seat. I'm going to ask the real tough questions and get after you a little bit. And uh, today we're talking about probably the sexiest topic in virtual real estate or really real estate in general. How do you find deals? This is where all the money is. This is where all the gurus are uh, dumping all their uh, their advertisements in your IG feeds. Um, this is it's finding deals. So I'm going to pepper you with questions. Are you, are you ready? Are you nervous? I no, I don't think I'm nervous. I'm excited, right? Because the genesis of this, and I think we've talked before, or I know we've talked before about it, is we created a course that we are going to uh, try to get students for and try to get people to enroll into. And then we just decided that we didn't want to do that, right? Like we, we've got a newsletter, we've got uh, this podcast, and we want to have relationships where we give away all this stuff for free. And then we're, we're not completely selfless. Like I'm sure we'll try to monetize stuff at some point, but in the early stages, we just want to give it all away for free. So I'm excited to just say, Hey, this is exactly what we do with acquisitions. This is what's good. This is what's bad. This is what's really hard. This is, this is what's easy. And I'm confident that if people do this, they can find deals. Like we're not going to hide anything. We're going to throw it all out there. And uh, if if anyone out there listening to it is trying to find deals, I think you can use this stuff and uh, get to work. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll give you some credit. I I agree. And we did have three students that you taught um, a month and a half ago, and they all found deals. Right? One of them had four contracts before we finished the course. So uh, <laughs> I know it, we know it works. So I'm happy to dig into this and. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to start firing away. So let's do it, brother. Let's get right to business. How are we finding our deals right now in Grayline? Yes. So uh, big picture marketing wise is you got to think of outbound marketing versus inbound marketing. I want to make that distinction. Okay. So outbound marketing is we reach out to people and say, do you want to sell us your house? Okay. Inbound marketing is people call us and say, hey, I want to sell my house, will you buy it? Okay, so outbound versus inbound. We focus, our business right now is focused on outbound marketing. So what we do is we pull lists of people, usually those are landlords or some type of distressed uh, owner, and we reach out to those people and say, are you interested in selling your home? And how we reach out to most of those people is through cold calling, right? So the primary way we are finding deals right now is by cold calling sellers and cold calling for sale by owner leads. So we go on Zillow and people that have their house listed for sale by owner, we call them and ask them if they want to sell it at a discount. So those are our two primary means of getting deals. We're still sending text messages as well, but uh, text messaging is dying a, a very quick death in this space as we've talked before. So elaborate on that. So you're right. We were cold calling, or excuse me, text. Now we're we're cold calling. Why did we make that shift? So we at one point in 2020, we were sending 10,000 text messages every day. And what we realized is we just stopped getting as many leads from those 10,000 text messages. And all the systems said that 10,000 text messages were still going out and were still getting delivered. But after doing some... 
some research into it, we're confident that all those 10,000 text messages weren't actually getting delivered to the people. So our the carriers like Sprint and AT&T and Verizon, they filter through that. And some of those text messages don't actually get to the seller, but they don't report back to us and let us know which got through and which didn't get through. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game with text messaging that I think AT&T and Verizon are going to win. Right. So we, we at some point realized it's not as strong as it once was. It was getting worse. So that's when we started going to cold calling. Okay. So cold calling. Let's talk about that. What uh what's your favorite part of cold calling as an acquisition strategy or tool? What's your least favorite part? My favorite part is you can build rapport easier than text message. Everyone's super tough on text message, right? On text message, they're like, what's your price? right? Like best negotiators in the world on text message. Everyone's a, sh a strong person, right? Um, when you're on a, a phone, people are much more personable, right? So you can, you can hear inflections and tones of voices. When someone says, oh, that's my daughter in the background, you can say, oh, you know, are, are you a dad? Are you, you a mom? Like you can start trying to build rapport. That stuff doesn't come up in text messages. So I like that. What I don't like about cold calling is one, if you are the one cold calling, I was talking to some people today about it. Cold calling is really scary when you start. If you've never done it before, it can be really scary to get your confidence going, right? And then once you get over the confidence hump, the hard part about cold calling is the majority of the time, it just goes to voicemail. The majority of the time, you don't actually get to call someone. So if you want to be good at cold calling, you have to do a very high volume of calls because most of the time you're not actually going to be talking to someone. Then, you know, when you talk to people, most of the time they're going to tell you no as well. So you just, you have to make sure you have thick skin. Yeah. So you need a dialer probably if you want to hit that volume like Mojo or the other tools that are out there. We use Zencall. Um, but the other tough part, if you want to elaborate on it, is you have to manage people, right? If you, because you said like in, in reality, if you're a business owner, the odds that you're going to cold call for more than a month with like sustained excellence is very, very slim. I actually don't know anyone that can do it. Um, so what, what, what does that look like? What does our team look like? And how have we gotten to the point where we actually have a real team? Yeah, so we, we've got roughly 15 cold callers. Uh, they're all outside the United States. Um, most of them are in the Philippines and we have two in Pakistan and, uh, one, uh, Mario, we've got a new hire from El Salvador. Okay. So why are they, uh, from foreign countries, uh, currency arbitrage, right? Like the dollar goes farther in the Philippines than it does here. So, um, you know, they are very happy to work for us and work for our company at a lower per hour wage than we would pay someone in the United States. So that's why we use them. Um, most of them have call center experience. Most of them uh, have an accent, but speak really good English. So, so that's what um, our team looks like. Then to manage them, we do lots of, of Zoom calls, right? Like uh, I think most companies are used to dealing with virtual culture, virtual team building. So that's what we do. It's just across time zone and across continents now, not just across the United States. But managing those those people, managing the team, making sure that our cold callers are good, make sure and making sure our cold callers are motivated is a task. Like it's it's tough to do, but uh, I, I think our company does a pretty good job of it. Nice. And um, so we're, we're calling. We're on the phone. 
we call a homeowner. They own one, two, three main street. And they say, yeah, I'm interested in talking to you. How does that person then move through our process or move through our sales funnel? Right. Can you explain how that seller gets from point A all the way to point Z when the, the deal is closed? How does that work? Yeah, for, for sure. So um, we would someone we cold call, we would call that person a lead. If we've got a name and a phone number, we would call that person a lead. So then one of our virtual assistants or our cold callers or our lead specialists, right? They would cold call that person and they would go off a script, but the script would basically go, uh, Hey, Steve, this is Sarah with Grayline Investments. Do you still own 123 Main Street? Person says, yes, I still own that property. What's what's this call about? They said, well, I'm just interested or uh, would like to know if you're interested in selling that property. If they say uh, yes, then you go, okay, well, can you tell me a little bit about the condition? They work, work the script some, and ultimately we're looking to try to find four things, right? What price do they want? Uh, what is their motivation? What's their timeline to sell? And then what is their the condition of the house? Did I, I think I said condition already, but uh, those, those four things, right? Price, condition, timeline, motivation, okay? So we're trying to get those four things. And then at the end of that conversation or as that conversation progresses, our cold caller is gonna say, excellent. You sound like a perfect candidate for our company. We would love to buy your house. I'd love to schedule an appointment for you to talk to my manager. Would you be willing to talk to my manager, right? And then we would either live transfer that call or schedule that call with Adam uh, Adam Parsons, our acquisitions manager, okay? And um, then that would be a qualified lead. That qualified lead would go into our CRM or our customer relations relationship management CRM, customer relation. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, I'm, I'm uh, being put on blast right now, so I'm trying my best to uh, to think clearly here, okay? But it would go into our CRM, and then um, Adam would work that lead, try to get in touch with him, try to negotiate him, try to uh, lock that deal up, right? And uh, what we try to lock it up at is – roughly 70% of, of what the house is worth, right? Like that's that's a smooth process. What often happens is they say they want to talk to our manager and then we still have to try to chase this person down, try to call them multiple times, trying to follow up with them uh, to try to get the deal locked in. I, I like it. I like it. You also touched on uh, max allowable offer um, just, just right now. And I, I definitely wanted to touch on that. And the reason being is um, the market's nuts, right? We talk about that almost every week, at least once, how crazy the 2021 real estate market is. And sometimes um, there's people that will comment to us and they'll be like, oh, all wholesalers nowadays stink. They sell deals at super high prices. So shed some light on max allowable offer and like what you think is a reasonable number in today's market and like maybe why people might play with it up or down. Yeah, so max allowable offer means in sales, <clears throat> that is the, the maximum price you could offer to the seller to buy their house, right? So we might... Uh, tell or, or Adam might determine that his max allowable offer is $80,000. Okay. But that means he's probably going to try to get it at $60,000, right? Like he's going to try to get a better deal, but he's going to have the max allowable offer. So to your point, why are people saying that about wholesalers? Because traditionally most people are saying you got to buy at 70% of value, right? So if a house is worth $100,000, you got to buy it at 70%. But the market is so hot right now and so competitive that that percentage is going up, 
right? There's there's some markets that we're buying at 80%, right? 80% of value. So what is the appropriate number? I think the appropriate number is if you're a wholesaler, it's whatever you can wholesale at, right? Like if you have cash buyers that are willing to buy it, then wholesale it at that price. If you are looking to flip, you got to know your numbers and you got to work backwards and figure out what you can you can buy it for, right? But the interesting thing, depending on your market right now, is you can look at the comps and you can figure out what a price or what a property is worth. But right now it's often selling for greater than 100% of the comps, right? We're getting over asking price or over uh, the comparable value for a lot of houses. So you don't want to bank on that, but you also don't want to be ignorant to it either, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you got to try to keep your deal deal flow strong, okay? If you have super, super strict max allowable offers and you're not willing to budge that at all, you might have to sit on the sidelines for the next six months. So if you want to stay active in the game, you're going to have to play with that number. I, I agree. I also think, I think 2021 does introduce some unique challenges because it is hard to keep up with the, the, the home appreciation and still get volume. Like that is a challenge. So I think people, I think the message is like, don't be scared to change your max allowable offer if your market is screaming at you, telling you, you have to go do it. Um, the other thing, uh, like as the longer we do this, my, my interpretation of what a wholesaler's job is, is changed. Like I used to think, yeah, they're supposed to go find good deals. And now I'm like, no, like your job is to move distressed housing into the hands of, of buyers and you get paid for that service. That's it. Right. Like that's, that's really your job. You're a conduit. So yeah, I, I look, I look at a wholesaler like it's a it's an outsourced sales organization, right? Like it's a sales team that that is outsourced, right? So if you're one of the people that gets mad at wholesalers for having crappy deals, um, if no one is buying their deals, then okay. But if if that wholesaler is in fact selling their deals, maybe your criteria is just too strict for the given market conditions. And I will tell you that. You know, we're buying and selling a lot of houses right now, and we're looking at our buy box or our specific criteria at least like every two weeks or so. The market is is up and down and moving so much that you have to be right on top of it. And if you haven't moved your buy box or your criteria in the last three months, then you probably have an outdated buy box. That's yeah, very, very possible. So um that while we're talking numbers, tell me as a, a business owner. When you're evaluating your deal finding machine, what numbers are you looking at every couple of weeks to see how well you're doing? So our big one is leads per day, right? Like that's our leading indicator. We want to make sure every one of our cold callers is getting at least one lead a day. That's kind of our baseline. Hopefully we can get better than that, but we want to make sure every cold caller is getting at least a lead a day. Okay. And then we want to make sure each cold caller is getting one signed contract per month, right? So they're basically one lead per day. They're going to get on average 20 work days a month. They're going to be working, you know, 20 days in a month. We should be able to close roughly one out of, out of 20. So we need to make sure each cold caller is getting approximately one signed contract per month, right? So that as I think of kind of lead indicators and judging how the acquisitions team is doing, those are the two things I'm looking at. Yeah. What about other metrics like uh, like your cost per contract and all that other stuff? Like when's the time to look at those? Do you have times where you look at one number versus the other? Like how do you manage the KPIs, I guess is my question. I don't. 
right? <laughs> I do not manage the, the KPIs. Well, like John, you're a business owner. How do you how do you not manage them? I'm not I'm not great at that stuff, right? Like I am move fast, break stuff, kicking doors, like let's do it, follow me, rock and roll, right? But you know who is good at that? My awesome business partner, Frank, right? Dude, I was so, singing it up so that you would be <laughs> Like, bro, like, I didn't ask the question to get credit. But anyway, no, yeah. I, I just like let's let's not BS, right? Like, it's not a, a a great strength of mine, right? But we do a good job of balancing each other and out, balancing each other out. And I also like, I don't think you are super pumped to dig into our KPIs every month. But the bottom line is that's a responsibility that you carry for our business. So Frank pulls all the data you can imagine every month in our business. And then we go over it, right? And we have converse, conversations about it. And what does this mean? And what does that mean? And is this end number more important than the intermediate number or the, the front number? And you know, you can make data say anything you want. But the bottom line is, Frank, as you know, you're the one responsible for putting that data together. And then we have long discussions on what exactly that data means. But the reason I want to point out that that I don't spend a ton of time on our KPIs is, is maybe because I, I'm not smart, right? Some people might think that, but I can, I can be prone to a little analysis paralysis, right? If I start looking at the data too much, it makes me question a lot of different areas of our business, right? So this is what I do know. I know if we get a lead per day per cold caller and each cold caller is getting a contract a month, I know for sure we're going to have a boom in business, right? Like yeah. I know that to be a fact. So instead of trying to worry about lots of different pieces of data, I try to worry about that as much as possible. Yeah, I like it. I think for anyone listening that's just starting out, because honestly, I feel like 70% of people that do acquisitions in real estate are have anxiety about not having their KPIs together, Right. Like, like they hear everyone talk about it and they're like, oh shit, I must be the only person that doesn't have my KPIs together. Well, one, I think like 80% of us don't, right? We finally, like every month we feel like we, we get our KPIs in a good spot. And then we realize a month later, like there was room for improvement. It just always happens. So I would say start simple. Like if I had to just say three lag numbers, um, I would say your cost per contract. If you can get that number, your conversion on the back end, and your average profit. If you get those three numbers, you actually know if you have a real company or not, right? So just work backwards from there and then make it more complicated and figure all that other stuff out later. That's that's my tip. Yeah, uh, we've, we've coached a bunch of people on their KPIs and over and over again, we find ourselves saying like, keep it simple. Just keep it simple. So many people overcomplicate it. And to your point, you listen to enough podcasts, you hear these real estate investors that try to act like their KPIs are perfectly set up. And, and I highly doubt they're all telling the truth, right? And then you hear a lot of people say, well, I know if I put $7,000 into my marketing, it'll spit out two more contracts uh, out the back end. Like, I think a lot of people put way too much confidence in that as well. I think a lot of people are BSing about that. I understand you're going to have conversion data and I understand there's going to be trends that remain similar, but ultimately you don't have a, have a crystal ball. And I think there's too many gurus out there trying to say that every real estate investor should perfectly understand their KPIs. So then we have real estate investors that are more worried about Excel spreadsheets than picking up the phone and calling people. Right. No, uh, no doubt. No doubt. You know, the, the, the Excel spreadsheet has never closed a deal. What closes deals is picking up phone and saying, Hey, I want to buy your property. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's move on from KPIs because um, I don't want to be too much of a nerd. Um, so so uh, 
How, how does someone, let's say you're just getting started or uh, maybe you're in the SMS train and you're like, damn it, it's not working anymore. Um, how do you pick a marketing strategy? Like, how do you pick the right channel uh, depending on your needs? I think it depends on budget, right? U ultimately, like we're, we love cold calling right now, right? Like I think cold calling is, is working really good. The great thing about cold calling is almost everyone has a cell phone in their pocket with free minutes, right? We don't have to pay for minutes anymore. So if you don't have much of a budget, you can call. So I, I think that's important, right? Is, and you can also call for sale by owners on Zillow. So if you have $0, you can take your iPhone out and start calling for sale by owner leads on Zillow, right? Then I think it's really easy if you start getting some momentum there, you can go to a website like PropStream and start pulling vacant owner lists, start pulling pre-foreclosure lists, right? As, as you kind of reach your capacity there, then you can hire a virtual assistant. So I think it makes it a really good way to scale your business, right? I think there's some other good stuff out there, right? I think um, direct mail, right? You could do the same process kind of I just talked about, pulling lists and then instead of calling them, you can send the direct mail out. But to me, that's gonna be more expensive. You're gonna pay roughly 50 cents per postcard that, that goes out. Right. Um, so a lot of people really like direct mail. I think cold calling is better. I also really like when I'm feeling super motivated, I can sit down at my desk and I can start jamming phone calls and be like, I'm going to sit at this desk until I get a deal. And it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. And if you do direct mail, you can't really have that attitude. So sometimes you, you can feel like you're not in as much control where if you're cold calling, you can feel like I'm going to get a deal today, baby. I, I There's truth to that. I think the control you have in direct mail is for some people, how creative you get with that direct mail, right? I got a direct mail for um, a home I own in Texas and, or maybe it was from Ryan Smith, the lead guy. And it was, uh, it was literally like a giant card, like a, like a King or Ace of Spades folded. And that was the envelope. And I opened it up and it was like, if you work with me, it's a Royal flush. Like, like people who do direct mail, I feel like, are the same people that are artists and like paint on the weekends. Like, I think if you're into that and that gives you satisfaction, like screw it, do direct mail. Like you got to get your kicks, just do it. But um, I, I will play devil's advocate. And I would say um, the artist is the person selling direct mail, not the person actually doing it. And the reason I say that is I'm not sure the person that sends sexy direct mail has a better return on that spend right? They, they may get more phone calls, but are they actually getting more deals? I, I doubt it, right? Maybe I'm wrong and I'm fine if we disagree here. Um, but I, I tend to think some of that stuff is just so you sign up for their mailing campaign. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it obviously is working on me, so <laughs> maybe I'm the idiot, but I don't know. Maybe someone who's watching could comment and get like, there's no data that I know, I'm aware of to support or deny what either of us are saying. So who knows? Um, yeah. But what about, what about inbound, right? Um, when should someone be like, yeah, inbound's the solution for me. Like what are, what are your thoughts there? If you're new and you haven't done it before. Well, part of it is I don't know. Okay. We did it for maybe four months in 2020 and our, our spend was about $4,000 a month. Right. And I'm convinced our spend wasn't enough. We are also probably in too many cities and we're in on Google and we're on Facebook, right? Which may have been too many locations, but 
I would say don't mess with it unless you've got $10,000 and ideally $10,000 to throw at it multiple months in a row, right? So I would say the majority of people should just avoid uh, avoid inbound marketing for the time being, unless you're like, hey, like I'm rocking and rolling. I've got $30,000 to invest in there. Then yeah, go go find someone to teach you how to do inbound marketing at a very high level. But you definitely want to make sure you have money to put towards it or else it's not going to work, in my opinion. Again, saying that like we have a lot to learn there and we're getting ready to uh, to really double down. So my answer might change 60 to 90 days from now. Yeah, I, I actually think um, we're obviously very um, guru cautious. Uh, we, we allude to that sometimes in our podcast, but I think if you are going to do some type of inbound and spend $10,000, $10, maybe more, like that's something where I probably would spend some money on education in parallel with spending that money. So I knew actually what was going on. I don't think you can completely outsource it right off the bat is what I'm saying. So I would advise someone like learn as much as you can. Maybe you do spend a little bit of money on education. So you're competent. So that $10,000 investment doesn't go like poof into the ether. Um, so yes. I, I agree with that, but I, it's tricky though, right? Because there's a bunch of people selling pay-per-click courses and SEO courses for $10,000 a pop. Yeah. How good are those courses? I don't know. Like $10,000 is a lot of money to spend on a course. You better make sure sure it's good, right? When I say spend $10,000, I'm saying 10,000 pay $10,000 for just ads. So if you're going to pay $10,000 for a course, I think you need $10,000 in addition to that for the ad spend. So um, just, I think there's some shady people selling some of that education stuff. So I think there's some amazing people too, but just make sure you do due do, do diligence. I, I agree. I'm just, uh, I think you got to find the right person. I saw Chris Chico speak the other last week. I thought he was legit. Um, he showed us his own campaigns. Like there's no way he didn't fake it. Those were his campaigns. So, I mean, there's people out there that can do it, but I agree probably half of them are uh our fake gurus so um so let's go back to uh acquisitions our process what you know um what and here's a question what separates the good wholesalers or good acquisition teams from the great the good from the great how do you get from um, eight contracts a month to 15 or 20 like how do you how do you take that step i think there's processes involved right? Like um, some people, we, we call them deal chasers, right? Like they're really good at finding deals, but they can never find two deals at the same time, right? Like they're always chasing one deal, right? So um, you can probably, as a single person, you could probably chase three to four deals a month, right? Um, but if you're going to go to eight to 10 deals a month, you need some type of process, right? Like how does a lead go from a lead to a qualified lead to a uh, negotiating the contract to a verbal commitment to a signed contract, you need some type of process to be able to do that, okay? And then um, you need some some type of scale. Like, can a single person do 10 wholesale deals a month? They can, but that person is gonna be very busy and is, is gonna be a hustler, right? And then I, I think maybe to your point is the follow-up, right? Like following up is tough because initially you're trying to follow up with people and you're not getting anything from it, 
right? Because you're just starting out and you're really not following up with them because it's only been a week, right? But then as you go 30 days into it, three months into it, six months into it, then the follow-up starts to become money. And most people, most wholesalers, real estate investors, most people in this space are terrible at follow-up. They never do any follow-up at all. So people are like, well, what should I do? Should I do a drip? Should I you know, randomly send emails? How should I do it? Can I hire someone on Fiverr to write out my text messages? I say, screw all that stuff. Like, don't complicate it. Keep it simple. What is the simplest way you can follow up? This is what I recommend. On the first Monday of every month, call every lead in your system. Every person you've ever talked to, call them at least once a month right? Even if you don't have notes on them, even if you forget why you talk to them, every lead you have in your system, call them at least once a month and say, hey, just checking in, wanted to see if you are still interested in selling your house. I love that because we, we've had it where um, people we've spoken to have tried to set up really complicated follow-up campaigns where it's like, hey, on uh, 28 days after my first contact with this type of seller, I get a notification in my inbox to call them. And it's like, that's never going to work, right? Like whatever is the easiest solution for you or whomever's making the calls is is usually the best, right? So I, I think that's a great message, right? Whatever your sequences are, whatever your follow-up is, if it requires any manual effort whatsoever, take the easiest road because you will drop it. And um, we, we've started closing deals from like last July. We had two of them, I think, closed last week or the week before. So like we're starting to yeah. see that residual impact of uh, our marketing. And, and then um, one thought I have there, too, is it, it's kind of in line with the fancy direct mail piece, right? Is I don't think you need a fancy direct mail piece, just like I don't think you need a fancy follow-up system. Because when someone is ready to sell their house, you just got to ask them if they're ready to sell their house and they're going to tell you yes, right? Like there's this idea that somehow we can talk to a, a seller and be and use some fancy words or some sales jargon and they're going to be like, oh, that sounds good. Now I do want to sell my house, but I don't think that's how it works. The people we buy houses from, like they are motivated to sell their house. We just got to make sure we talk to them on the right day. They might not be motivated today. Maybe they'll be the next month or the following month. And when they are motivated, I don't think it takes a, a sexy direct mail piece or the perfect script or text or anything like that. We just got to make sure we talk to them on the right day. No doubt. It's it's a math equation, right? It's... um. If for an inbound lead and outbound lead, you'll have different numbers or different conversion metrics. For an inbound lead, Google, Facebook ad, maybe you're closing one out of 10 of your leads, maybe even better, right? Because those people are super motivated. They're actively searching for you to come rescue them from your house. But a cold call lead is going to have a different number, right? And maybe it's one out of 20, maybe it's one out of 30, right? But it, it, the reason that the number is somewhat consistent across different companies is because dude, that's that seller got to be motivated. So I'll ask you a question. If you're amazing at sales, let's say you're a cold calling company like we are, and your closer is on fire, right? And your process going up to that closer is excellent. Like what it how what is the best you can do? It's guess. Like there's no perfect answer. Well, I I mean I, I think you could be a hundred percent, right? But let me let me let me explain, okay? Is I think Adam Parsons, our acquisitions manager, is a great a great salesman. Okay, I think he's great at sales. Um, but in my opinion, if he gets his closing rate to where he's closing 
one out of 10, that means we have too many barriers in place to get a lead to him. What does that mean? I want Adam to be somewhere around one in 25, right? And if, if his conversion is greater than one out of 25, I want us to tear down barriers so he gets more lead leads, even if that means the quality of lead goes down, right? But that's something as a business owner, me and Adam talk about all the time is how many leads does he have? What's his conversion data? And I say one out of 25, right? Like if we've got a ton of leads, maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down, right? But I think the, the amazing conversion data often isn't because it's an amazing salesperson. It's because of how the system is set up. And I'm not trying to talk down any sales uh, professionals. Like I said, I think Adam is awesome, but I don't look at Adam like, you know, he is our start to finish sales. Adam is a very important component of our sales process, but our entire company is a sales organization. So we got to make sure we don't just look at that piece of conversion data. We got to look at every piece of conversion data. Okay. So here, here's what, let's put that into to practice. Adam gets to one out of 10. We go into, we look at May's KPIs and we're like, damn, you closed one out of 10 contracts. What's your immediate next step? What, what do you change in the process the next day to make sure that that changes? Right. So right now we say um, to be a qualified lead, someone that talks to Adam, the person has to own the house, want to sell and show one of the four signs of motivation. Right. So, uh, the, the four I said earlier, right? Condition, timeline, motivation, and price, right? So I would dig into those four things and say, hey, maybe some of our virtual assistants thinks it needs to be all four of those things. Maybe our virtual assistant, you know, thinks that they have to get them to commit to 70% of the Zillow value on the phone call, right? But I would think that our virtual assistants were being too strict on the the quality of lead that they sent to Adam. And I would immediately try to lower that barrier so Adam gets more leads, right? Yeah, I, I love it. That's that's what I was thinking too. Um, and those numbers, that's typically for outbound, the numbers we're throwing around. I mentioned it before, but inbound numbers for anyone that's listening tend to have a little higher conversion. But I don't know anyone that's closing one out of 10 leads for outbound marketing. If uh, you do know that person, I'd love to talk to them uh, just to pick their brain. Um, Okay. And it's 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 an eb, it's an ebb and flow, right? The whole thing goes together. Where there are times where maybe Adam is closing one out of fifty. It, it doesn't mean Adam has gotten worse. It means that we've adjusted and maybe become too liberal with what a qualified lead is, and now we need to tighten that up, right? So it's well, you're talking about the month where we we uh, we didn't change our qualified lead criteria. And we did a bunch of FSBO for sale by owner. And we basically had people asking for sale by owners, like, are you the owner and do you want to sell your house? You know, all of them said yes. So our poor, our poor closer, Adam, had like a hundred crap leads. <laughs> so we, we quickly fixed it, which is, I guess, the strength of tracking KPIs. But that's like exactly what you're alluding to. Like we, we gave him crap leads because the system did it, not because he couldn't close. Yes. Um, okay. So... You're a marketer, you know, we, we're, we, I think that's apparent based on our conversation, or at least you run a marketing funnel or sales funnel. Um, what changes do you predict in the next year to two years in direct-to-seller marketing in our space and uh, real estate acquisitions? I think cold calling could die. 
right? I think just like we're seeing with SMS, um, where carriers are shutting it down, I think cold calling, the same thing could happen. I think most of us right now are getting calls on our iPhone where it says scam likely, right? And I think uh, that's happening with us already too. We're having to rotate our the numbers we're calling on because people are marking them as spam and then they're showing up on people's phone as spam and then people aren't answering. I think carriers will get better and better at that. So over the next two years, I think there's a good chance uh, cold calling dies or, or gets severely limited, right? Um, so what's never going to go away in outbound marketing? Direct mail, right? Like direct mail, uh, the, the post office is always going to want you to send letters, um, so then instead of having an outbound call center, we have an inbound call center, right? So we're doing a bunch of Facebook, um, Google, different social media advertising. We're sending out postcards. And then we have a call center that's uh, job is to receive those calls. So anyone that calls in, we have a call center being manned 24 hours a day to intake that lead and then also do the follow-up, right? And then... Um, you know, there's a lot of people going to traditional media right now because some think it's mispriced. So looking at radio and TV, um, some, of, some of that stuff is exciting, especially in some of the smaller tertiary markets where we go to. I think some of that stuff might be mispriced right now, so we could potentially uh, get after that. I think some of the – we've talked with Josh Miller about the custom audiences or the uh, artificial intelligence where we say, okay, these are the 50 properties that we've closed on. Let's try to come up with a lookalike audience that, that looks like this. I think some of that will continue to be exciting as well. That's awesome, man. Um, and then I'm going to ask you, this is actually my last question that I have uh, scheduled for you. Um, what's the hardest part about this hustle? Maybe just that. It's it's a hustle, right? So what you and I talk about a lot is... Um, scaling a virtual real estate investing company, right? Like in this podcast, virtual real estate investing. It's it's tough to get a deal, but it's so much easier to get one to two deals than it is to get 20 or 30 deals, right? And we are building a company where we're trying to do a deal a day, right? Like we, our numbers don't look great until we can do a deal a day. What I mean by that is there might be people that are doing a couple deals a month by themselves that in reality are taking home more money than you and I are, right? Because they're, they're doing only a couple deals with big spreads. They don't have a team and they're, they're making a bunch of money, right? They're super lean. What we've made the decision to do is instead of taking the one to two deals a month, we're going to try to do 30 deals a month. And to do that, we need to sp- we need to spend a lot of money, right? Like our marketing spend last month was was thirty thousand dollars, and we're getting ready to to kind of double down on that on some of the inbound stuff. So that means we have to get to a point where we're doing thirty deals a month. So then you have to look at margins, and you have to look at scale, and you have to look at efficiency, and figure out how do we make sure we keep enough margin? How do we make sure that all of our cold callers are good so we can get similar margins to that person doing one to two deals, but now we're going to do 30 deals, right? So that that's what's really tough, right? And that's why there's not a lot of people that scale virtual flipping companies or virtual wholesaling companies. Because I 
I think it's tough. I think it's hard. I think it's slow growth, right? We, we're having to have team meetings with people in from multiple continents, right? We're having to create the KPIs and the tracking mechanisms. And you put all that together, it's, it's hard work. It's running a startup. Some people think what we're doing is, is a passive real estate investment, right? And there's nothing passive about what we're doing. We're running a startup business that invests in real estate. And I, I think it's super, super tough. That being said, I believe in the vision, right? Like I think it's hard, but I think we're the right people to do it. And I think when we can scale to the level we want to scale, I think we're going to have a huge upside. But uh, that's what I think it is, is the hustle and the grind uh, is is day in and day out and you can't take a knee. Yeah. I think any business that you're starting, it's hard to take, if you are scaling, it's hard to take profits in the first one one to two years. And the other reason is, let's say your core business, like our case, is profitable, right? Like you're putting a dollar into marketing, you're getting $3, $4 back, right? Like that that sounds good. But when also when you're scaling, you're going to start spending money on and time on other things. Like, oh, I got to get all my legal stuff set up. Oh, I got to spend some money on education because I really need to learn what I'm doing because I'm a brand new entrepreneur. There, you're going through that tough period at the beginning because you're not just spending money on the core business or the core like customer path that they have to follow. You're spending money on all the other stuff too and probably even more than you probably will in the future unless you do super successful stuff and then you join Collected Genius or something, one of those like 25 grand masterminds. Um, so I think um, I think people need permission to like, if you're going to scale, to like, hey man, it's okay to like leave that money in the bank account and not buy a Lamborghini in your first year and a half. You know, anyone who's been doing this a year and has a Lambo, um, either comes from money or is not or is going to lose that money, right? <laughs> like to me, that's a five year plan, and uh, you can be patient with it. That's that's my thought. Um, Excellent. Okay, I get to ask you a question now, Frank. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. Um, how are we going to go from, you know, 10 to 15 deals a month that we're doing right now to 30 deals a month? Okay. That's your question. I'm going to go ahead and take this opportunity to do a quick commercial break. If you have a deal out there, send it to us deals at graylineinvestments.com. You guys know the drill. This is the other commercial I want to do though, is we've got a newsletter that we're working on super hard right now. Goes out every Monday. If you want to get on our newsletter, go to graylineinvestments.com. Throw your your email in there. We're trying to get the website set up. We're trying to get all formalized and and everything. But I think we are adding something to the real estate space, the off market real estate space that I think is valuable. We've been getting good feedback on it. Uh, goes out every Monday. The uh, virtual real estate investing newsletter. I'm excited about it. I, I think we've got. Uh, some good opportunities there to hopefully share a lot of the lessons that we're learning. So Frank, we're at 10 to 15 deals a month right now. We want to get to 30. In your opinion, how do we do that? I think it's a multi-pronged effort for us. So we uh, we have a good team cold calling. Um, the numbers tell us we should add a little bit more to it, right? So I think over time, we'll probably add some more cold callers and that'll definitely add a few deals. I think for our company to work, to get to where we want to be, I think we need to win the inbound lead experiment. So as you're aware, we're going to delve back in um, and start spending money on some Google ads and PPC and uh, start doing some Facebook ads as well. I'd like to see that pick up. I think a couple other things. Um, one, being more responsive to the markets we operate in. So for anyone listening, we we operate in like 10 different cities. The, the number of cities we operate in changes every month. And um, 
we have some cities we do really, really well in, right? Like El Paso or Tyler, Texas. And what what we can do in those cities now that we have all this data is we can probably expand our buy boxes a little bit. So for example, in Tyler, the first time we hit that city, we capped our ARV at $250,000, right? But now we know we have a good agent there. We have a good contractor there. We're like, you know what? Let's let's jack that up to $400,000, maybe in Tyler, $600,000. That's going to add more leads to the funnel. And in our case, probably have the option or the ability to have a higher margin flip. So that's kind of like a, I didn't really answer your question because that kind of says there's a little bit more leads, but it's also a higher margin for us. But that's something we're doing, right? Cities we've had success in and we have data on it, we adjust the buy box. And I think that will result in more deals over time. So those are the three things we're focusing on now. Adding inbound, adding more outbound because it's working and changing buy boxes um, when we learn more about a particular market. So that's that's where we're at. I like it. I agree with all that. The one opportunity that you didn't mention that I think we're starting to get better at is portfolios. So uh, there was a time not long ago that we would tell people don't even mess with portfolios because we were like 0 for 10 on the first 10 portfolios we tried to negotiate on and we tried to come to terms on. We just, we couldn't make it work. Uh, but we got a three, three house portfolio in Pensacola and then uh, hopefully uh, we close on this six house portfolio in Lawton. So I, I think there's some opportunity there where if you can go to a landlord that owns multiple properties and say, I will buy all of these in whatever shape they're in, no matter what the tenant situation is, I will buy all of these for cash. You got to make sure you get it at a really good price, right? But if you can tell landlords that, I think there's big opportunities there. Um, and if we're we're looking at getting to the 30 a month, if we can get a portfolio of 10 houses, that helps us get to 30 quite a bit faster. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. It's uh, it's an interesting time too, because with the moratoriums being lifted and evictions expected to increase, I mean, in 2020, evictions were down 65% with unemployment higher than the previous year. So that just tells you how many evictions have been delayed. I mean, most of them, right? That's the answer. Most evictions have been delayed. So is the tired landlord market going to have a lot of blood in the water in the second half of 2021? It's certainly possible. So is there going to be a lot of portfolios hit the market? Yeah. Is it a falling knife? I don't know, right? <laughs> like, so there's definitely risk in what you're saying. So I don't think you start out with portfolios, but I think you can graduate to them like we kind of have over the last year. I would also throw in there, I think landlords are great seller finance candidates because they're used to getting monthly cash flow and they understand the power of monthly cash flow because most people with 10 properties have been doing it for a long time. So I think it's very easy sell to say, hey, I'll buy this at a discount, but I'll give you this 500 bucks a month for these four houses. And they're like, oh, okay, that's what I was making before, except I do no work. So I love that. I love create creativity when you're dealing with a landlord because they they get it. So for sure. Good question though. Awesome. Okay, we'll wrap it up. Uh, really appreciate it, everyone listening. Thanks for your support. We appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Take care.